I think everybody comes to Washington, you know, when you ask them what they want to do, they go, oh, I want to do foreign policy. And first response I get is, oh, well, let me show you the coffee maker. On any given day in Washington, D.C., policy proposals are created, debated, and decimated by tens of thousands of people and organizations working behind the scenes. Each week, a guest and I will visit one of D.C.'s many watering holes and distill the art of advocacy. We'll pull back the curtain a bit and take a look at how they play their part in this sausage factory we call our federal government. So if you're at all interested in how the sausage is made, pull up a chair, grab a drink, and join us for the next 20 minutes or so. After all, what goes better with sausage than a tall, cold one? Welcome to this week's episode of 80 Proof Politics. We're broadcasting today from the Center of Irish Hospitality in Washington, D.C., the Dubliner Inn. Started in 1974, it's located literally in the shadow of the Union Station and only a couple blocks from the Capitol at the corner of Massachusetts Avenue and North Capitol Street. It's part of the Phoenix Park Hotel, but it, uh, you wouldn't know it because they have done a fantastic job of replicating an authentic Dublin City pub, uh, down to the fact that they are one of the largest purveyors of Guinness in the United States. In fact, the only seller of all Dubliner Amber Ale, which I'm trying today. And they even have their own Irish whiskey, which is produced in conjunction with an historic distillery in Ireland. You can get the classic Irish fare, but I highly recommend coming basically any night of the week for the live music. You will not be disappointed. And Danny wants me to tell you that they are getting ready to open a brand new patio attached on the F Street side of the Dubliner that's going to open in September with a great seating area that can be enclosed for these hot summer days or cold winters and you will run out of excuses for not coming to the Dubliner once they open that. I we're also here because my guest Bert, until recently had an office just down the street from here. We're joined today by Jim Smith, who's president of the Potomac Policy Group and is a about almost 30-year veteran in healthcare policy experience here in town. So, Jim, with that, welcome to 80 Proof and cheers. Thanks, Bill. Glad, glad to be here. Well, glad to have you. So, now, you've had a long career in Washington, focused almost exclusively on healthcare policy in different veins, but let's start by telling me more about Potomac Policy Group. Potomac Policy is the uh, uh, company that I started when I got uh, tired of working for other people. And... Uh, uh, I've been doing healthcare politics in Washington for 20 years. Uh, I came here 30 years ago and, and uh, started in politics. But at some point, I got uh, kind of uh, sick of paying other people's rent, and I decided to do it on my own. I have a handful of clients I have, uh, in my in my business, and I'm the guy that fixes the copier, and I'm the guy that signs the contracts. I'm the guy that balances the checkbook, and I'm the guy that gets paid. So it works pretty well for me. <laughs> it must. I'm happy for you too. That. You have been involved in a lot of the big health care debates, battles, and policy creation throughout your career here in Washington. I mean, everything from Medicare reform, 
medical device user fee, which I think was part of what, the Stimulus Act. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Been right. Um, and patient bill of rights. Yeah, absolutely. Tell me about what it was like being in the middle of three huge healthcare policy debates like that. Well, all of those are interesting stories. I think uh, the patient's bill of rights uh, probably is one of the uh, um, most interesting. I, I was a senior lobbyist at the American Medical Association at the time, and a lot of our members had problems with prompt pay with insurance companies. They were uh, battling insurance companies on every level, and we made a strategic decision that we'd be better off representing patients than arguing with insurance companies, and we went to Ted Kennedy and John Dingell and explained to them that you're not allowed to sue an HMO, even though they're they claim to be making medical, they're making medical decisions. All they do is they say they're preempted under ERISA because they're paying for treatment or not paying, depending. So uh, we started a patient's bill of rights. We, uh, uh, we wrote up uh, several key principles of patient protection in that legislation. And Mr. Dingle and Mr. Kennedy were very uh, supportive. And uh, the only thing they uh, ask of us is that we uh, consult with them on everything that we did. And we were partners uh, through the whole thing. Eventually, uh, it passed in both chambers of Congress, but in different sessions. Uh, ultimately, uh, President Clinton signed into exe- in a, an executive order that created all of these patient protections for federal employees, which became sort of like the way California treats automobiles. It's a separate standard, but one basically everybody meets because they want to do business with all of those uh, federal employees. And so uh, it was a great battle and got a lot of exposure uh, with, to uh, the whole depth and breadth of medical societies, uh, state chapters, uh, uh, various specialties. It was a, a big battle. Everybody wanted to be a part of it, and it was a lot of fun to manage that and to bring it to a, a successful conclusion. You mentioned the breadth of entities involved in that, but you know, a lot of people don't appreciate just how healthy the health care policy environment is here in Washington. I mean, it's one of the most active lobbying sectors in town. You've seen it from many different fronts now. I mean, the American Medical Association, where you're assistant director of congressional affairs, the American Dental Association, where I think you get your first Washington-type job, yeah. right? Exactly. Right. How do all of these piece parts work together, or is it often a case where those various interests are so self-focused that it's hard to get the larger healthcare community to speak with a voice? Oh, it's very definitely hard to get everybody to speak with the same voice. Uh, In fact, I think it's very common for the American Medical Association to get maybe a little sideways with specialty organizations within their own House of Delegates where specialty organizations want to get paid for doing new technologies and other treatments and procedures, whereas the American Medical Association really represents, in that, in that instance, almost a status quo, the people who are already paid to do other things. So there's always a lot of conflict, and uh, not even to mention you know, the conflict between ophthalmologists and, and optometrists and chiropractors and medical doctors and a whole range of other interests that are that are usually fairly distinct and, and often very different. So it's, it's very difficult to get all of those people kind of uh, uh, moving in the same direction and they all work for different organizations, they all have different priorities and yeah that's a, a, a 
a very difficult task. And have you been in a situation where you've tried to get a coalition of some of those entities together? Well, the Patients' Bill of Rights certainly was you know, one of those instances, and we ran regular meetings every week, and, and we tried to reach out to, other, uh, to as many of the medical organizations in the AMA House of Delegates. We tried to get them working with us on that. Members of Congress respond to various constituencies and certainly the geographical medical societies, whether it's the uh, you know, Texas Medical Society or Travis County or you know, Los Angeles County Medical Society is, uh, is definitely something that members recognize and want to hear from. All of those organizations are distinct, uh, both from a policy perspective as well as from a political perspective. Almost all of them have a, a political action committee. And in many instances, if you don't get the support of the American Medical Association, then you can go and get the support from, you know, some of the constituent organizations that might, you know, potentially even be on the side of a particular issue. So it's a big, big world. And that's not even to mention the uh, ancillary or, you know, tertiary organizations outside of the world, the house of medicine. Uh, where we're talking about device manufacturers, pharmaceutical uh, manufacturers, and whole, you know, hospitals, whatever. Healthcare, they say, is a seventh of the economy, and it's certainly a seventh of the uh, footprint of uh, policy professionals and lobbyists in Washington because of all the fights over healthcare over the last uh, many years. Yep. The bulk of your career was spent doing healthcare within trade associations. So we've talked about the AMA. Uh, you went on from there to be senior vice president for governmental affairs with the American Healthcare Association. Well, and you were, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, first you went to AdvaMed. Yeah. When I was at AdvaMed, we did uh, basically redraft of uh, uh, coverage coding and payment policy at CMS. And that's when we created the uh, user fees. And we also created the ability for uh, third party inspections of all types of manufacturing facilities, both here and abroad. So that brings the United States into agreement with the European standard where uh, notified bodies, as they call them in Europe, or basically disinterested third parties would do these facility inspections according to a uh, international standard called ISO 9000. And then they would report the results to the FDA. The FDA still has the ability to inspect anybody for any reason or for no reason. But as long as they have this stream of data coming in from third parties, then it gives them a very good sense of where to look for potential problems or, you know, to see over the horizon where uh, problems might be uh, coming from. So it's a very, it's very advantageous not only to manufacturers uh, because they can uh, schedule these uh, visits and they understand, you know, what it, what it takes to uh, get, all of it, uh, get all of it done. It's very advantageous to the FDA because they have like another set of eyes. And obviously that benefits patients because it makes it a little uh, cheaper and easier to uh, build these products. So take a step back, if you would, and just explain to our listeners, what is AbbaMed? The official name is the Advanced Medical Technology Association, and uh, it is the uh, umbrella group for medical device manufacturers. Um, it used to be called the Health Industry Manufacturers Association. AbbaMed's much better. <laughs> yeah, in fact, when I, before I... When I went to work there, it was uh, I, I took a jo- I got a job offer from the Health Industry Manufacturers Association, and I went to work at Advamed. So they changed the name before I actually uh, uh, could show up there. But Advamed is a uh, represents not only a lot of healthcare companies, but a lot of manufacturing companies. So there's a whole portfolio of issues that are related to healthcare, but also a lot of issues that are just related to general business, import-export, taxation, uh, a lot of other things that uh, that manufacturers generally have to deal with. 
Who does the American Healthcare Association represent? The American Healthcare Association is a trade association for skilled nursing facilities and nursing homes. There are a number of very large for-profit companies that run those companies, and there are also a great number of individual and uh, you know small businesses that are almost like mom and pop shops where they've they've had a nursing home or and also there's a, a very healthy sector of not-for-profit nursing facilities that are either run by state uh, by local governments or charitable organizations so all of those facilities have to rely primarily on government payment systems and Medicare and Medicaid to take care of the patient populations there and my job at the American Healthcare Association was to redraft the payment methodology for skilled nursing facilities after a uh, transition period that was not budget neutral that left many of the nursing homes in a uh, in very uh, tenuous financial position. So we spent the better part of a million dollars creating a real-time data model where our companies put all of their daily patient information and payment information into a big computer model that we generated. So when we went to negotiate with CMS about the uh, rates and the codes that relate to, you know, for payment of these uh, facilities and these patients, uh, we probably had much better data than they did because their data set is a universal data set, but it usually is, you know, one or two or three years kind of in the making, and they don't really have a real-time window as to, you know, what the world looks like at the moment. Which can change dramatically in three years. So. Yeah, I think one of the big problems that, that with CMS with respect to healthcare reform generally is that they drive our healthcare delivery system kind of looking in the rearview mirror at the data set that, that they had two or one or, or three or even five years ago, with, with particularly with respect to new technologies. That's a... Uh, that can be a big problem. So three healthcare associations over the course of your career, but three very different membership bodies and probably approaches to policy as well. Because you got AMA with the doctors, you've got American Healthcare Association with these skilled nursing facilities, and then wedged right in the middle are the medical device manufacturers right. and sellers. What are some examples of the commonalities that you found as you would work through your job on a day-to-day -day basis. Were there similarities that you learned from that you could pull from to translate it well from one association to the next? Well, certainly the relationships that you develop with policymakers in Congress and the administration are uh, relevant with respect to all of those uh, advocacy organizations. Uh, they're all basically going to the same people, asking different questions. Some of the partnerships and interested parties are kind of mix and match. I mean, in some instances, you get hospitals to uh, uh, to help you or to take an interest in what you're doing. In some instances, you can get patient organizations, whether it's uh, the American Heart Association or Parkinson, to take an interest in what you're doing. And uh, if you if you're very open and straightforward with them and tell them exactly you know uh, what you're doing and where you're uh, what you want to accomplish many of those organizations are very willing to work with you on discrete policy goals so and how would you engage the different memberships in those associations when it came time to advocate did you get them to come to town to do fly-ins would you keep them and in, informed of what was happening and then do constituent type outreach the american medical association always does a big fly-in but it's been around for a long time they also have a lot of influence at state and local medical societies and uh, members of congress know you know they want to get the uh, uh, docs on their side they want to know they, they know how that works medical device manufacturers are are a little different i mean 
we actually would create a, like a technology forum where we would invite the medical device manufacturers, we would invite patient groups that had a stake in new technologies or new patient uh, new procedures to benefit patient populations. Uh, we would invite other physicians or other uh, clinics or other or hospitals, other stakeholders that, that are part of the performance of these procedures. And usually that involves an academic medical center, so you can create a, you know, a nexus to the university and the, uh, uh, the research and the, the work that goes on there. So all of those are different sort of mechanisms, but they all work sort of in the same, you know, uh, basically you, you have to decide, you know, who might be interested in, in your issue and get them to pay attention and help you out. Now, I assume that each of these associations had a very robust communications department or public affairs department or would outsource their communications to members as well as to the target audience here in town. How much coordination did you have in the government affairs role with the messaging part of the association work? Well, for instance, when you're talking about medical technology companies, I mean, the, the media relations that they do is dramatically different than the public affairs or the government relations component that we're trying to focus on. So a lot of times it's it's important to bring those people into your network and, and kind of let them understand how you're trying to accomplish your goals and get them kind of bought into the mission. And when you can do that, then they're very helpful. And, you know, they have a lot of access and a lot of relationships that, that, that we don't have here in Washington. So developing that kind of trust and uh, seamless integration with uh, local specialists, whether it's in media relations or uh, the sales team or, you know, whatever, sometimes is, uh, can be very helpful. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. One of the tools you, you probably had at your disposal each of those stops was a political action committee. The PAC contributions from healthcare field are well known and, and enormous, but uh, that's how you got your start in town, didn't it? Doing PAC work? Right, yeah. Well, actually, I uh, came to Washington to work for a national party committee, and I did fundraising, and then when I got done with that, I went out and ran a campaign. I came back to Washington, and I became the assistant PAC director of the American Dental Association, and that's a very large PAC, but it sort of runs, it almost runs itself. I mean, we, we, did, we do spend a lot, we did spend a lot of time sort of in the care and feeding of the faithful. We go out and, and speak to their state convention or, uh, you know, help them write their PAC newsletter or, you know, just try to keep them, uh, find ways to get them plugged into what we're doing. But those kinds of relationships can be very helpful when it comes to the advocacy component of what goes on in Washington because the, the, obviously the people who are 
giving money to the American Dental Association Political Action Committee are interested in making sure that Congress, as they go about their policy duties, keeping a, an eye on how it affects the practice of dentistry. So obviously PACs get a lot of attention these days. They have for a number of years, but you found it a useful tool, I'm assuming? Yeah, actually it, it, it's very helpful, and I think it gives you a whole new environment in, in which to make relationships with, with uh, policymakers. So, you know, when a member of Congress has his annual whatever, you know, fish fry or bean supper or... Uh, you know, turkey hunt or a golf tournament or whatever, you can go out there and uh, connect the individuals in the medical society or the dental society with the uh, congressman and his staff, and you can also kind of wedge yourself firmly in the middle there and make sure that they understand that uh, you're part of, of what the locals are trying to get done. And you can also develop a, you can use that opportunity, that time to develop a better relationship and a relationship of trust and confidence with policymakers. So after being a, one of the PAC managers at ADA, you went to the Hill. You did. Yeah, yeah, you yeah, took yeah. a path that's not always common. Yeah, the, the PAC was actually uh, so advantageous to me that I ended up getting a job out of it. <laughs> because we were giving a lot of money to people who were running for office, and I, got, I developed a relationship with one of them, and when he came to Washington, we were pretty good friends, and he said, Jim, I, I want to ask you, I uh, need somebody who knows a little bit more about Washington uh, than I do, and uh, somebody who uh, you know could be a good fundraiser and help me uh, manage my office and whatnot. Uh, do you have anybody in mind? And I said, uh, thought about it for a second, and I said, yeah, I think I know somebody. And that, I ended up uh, going to work for, uh, for the congressman. And, and who was that? Congressman Peter Deutsch from Florida. I was with him for almost five years. I was his chief of staff. We had uh, a district office, and two district offices, one in outside of Fort Lauderdale and the other in Key West, Florida. And then we had a, a big staff in Washington, too. So. But it's not like you were stepping away from the health care field entirely. I mean, being a chief of staff and, uh, and helping with the, the campaign of a oh. member of Congress is one thing. But he was very senior, eventually became very senior in a lot of the health care discussions at the Energy Commerce Committee. Yeah, uh, absolutely. We worked very hard to get him a seat on the Energy and Commerce Committee, and then he subsequently became the chairman of the health subcommittee. Talk a bit about that process. How do you go about getting your boss on a particular committee? Well, there are a lot of things, I guess, that are probably not for sale in Washington, but a, a committee a seat is... Uh, goes a long way to, sh to demonstrate to the steering and policy committee that you have a, uh, a very robust fundraising operation. And uh, uh, we took a very strong interest in a lot of congressional races around the country. We sent a lot of money to uh, Democratic candidates who were, uh, who were seeking a seat in Congress. And, we, and as we did that, uh, we made sure that people in the uh, food chain, the political food chain, and, and the uh, Democrats in the United States Congress knew what we were doing, and uh, we were able to instill in them a sense that we were a team player, that we could be trusted, that we were uh, pretty serious about doing this, and it worked out to our advantage. Uh, we ended up getting one of the uh, handful of seats on energy and commerce that was available, and turned out to be a great thing for uh, for the congressman and for his constituents, and also for his staff, because we got to work on a lot of really important issues at that time. And were you still with him when he decided to run for the Senate? I spent a lot of time in Florida when I was uh, with the congressman, and it was a lot of, it, it, I wanted a job where I didn't have to spend 
uh, basically every other week in Florida. So uh, I had a, a young family at the time and it made sense for me to uh, look downtown and I ended up uh, going to work for the American Medical Association. Yeah, being chief of staff can be very demanding because you have to pay attention to everything in the 24-7 cycle to keep your boss informed. But were you also in charge of the district offices? I know sometimes they're separated from the D.C. office. Yeah, I, I was. And I, when, I was, when I did campaign work, one of the old-timers there told me, he goes, a third of all the stuff that we do here is wasted. We just don't know what third, what, what, what that is until we get done. And uh, it's definitely true running a congressional office that you spend a lot of time focused on a lot of things, kind of watching a lot of pots boil, and you don't know which one's going to boil over at any point, but you have to be on top of it. And you, have to, you have to know the whole background of that issue as soon as somebody, wants to, somebody else wants to know. So a lot of it is pretty tedious just keeping on top of everything. And then you have a ground to cover there as well just to be on top of a whole two, two completely different sort of social environments and uh, whole different sets of issues and... Uh, you know, one obviously very related to uh, uh, senior issues, and then another uh, really related to a whole different set of issues. And in Key West, obviously the uh, Everglades and the uh, Marine Sanctuary, and a lot of issues related to uh, flood insurance and weather stations and uh, drug interdiction. Whereas in suburban Broward County, it's a lot more predictable kind of Social Security, Medicare. That type of thing. So, well, plus you got to travel to Key West. I did. I really like doing that. That's uh, not not bad duty. I, I actually got to go out on a uh, on a Coast Guard cutter, and and actually the uh, Marine Sanctuary came into possession of a really 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 nice speedboat that had been taken over from a drug dealer, uh, and so we were out there uh, diving to observe the uh, conditions of the uh, one of the endangered species out there in the Marine Sanctuary, the Queen Conch. That was a good day. That sounds like a great day. So after about a decade, almost decade and a half, of working a bit on the hill, but within four trade associations, you jump to a more traditional lobby firm, the American Continental Group. How was that transition? I did very well. I was at the American Healthcare Association for a fairly short time. Our, as I said, our whole job there was to uh, create this transition between these two payment systems and to basically build a new payment system that allowed us to continue to uh, serve patients and, and to make a little bit of money doing it, I guess. And when CMS announced the new payment policy, I, I know for a fact that the, uh, the stocks of a lot of these nursing home companies that sat on our board jumped 5 or $10, and a lot of those guys made a lot of money. They gave me a standing ovation, and I uh, walked out of the room. I called my wife, and I said, I think there's a better way to do this. <laughs> and so I uh, went to American Continental Group, and I took the American Healthcare Association as a client, and then I started reaching out to other healthcare organizations and building a practice a healthcare practice within American Continental Group. And you were there during the Affordable Care Act debate? Yep. Did that, the ramping up of the, the debate from the President's announcement of it till Congress really got into the weeds, did that, was that a boon to the business? Did it help you attract clients given your extensive background? Yeah, perhaps it did. I, I would say that there's always something going on in healthcare, but you know, whether it's Mr. Archer or Mr. Thomas or really any of the people who have, who have come along since. They all want to leave their mark in healthcare. They all want to have a big bill. And uh, my job basically is to find clients that want one little thing that we can tack into that you know big bill. And we can make it consistent with the policy goals of the 
you know, whether it's the Affordable Care Act or whether it's the Beneficiary Improvement and Protection Act or, you know, the, uh, any of the other things that came along before that. And, you know, a lot, a lot of times companies want a very discreet, you know, fix that doesn't really have anything to do with the big picture, you know, goals of the Affordable Care Act, but it, it, it's not something that will be, you know, in the Washington Post. It's not something that is going to really, you know, sway a lot of votes, but it's a minor part of the way business is done. For instance, I had a client who uh, very much wanted the ability to hire a doctor on staff permanently at that facility. And we collected a lot of data and we ran a lot of numbers and, and we showed the uh, Congress that we could save a lot of money by not taking people to the in the ambulance to the emergency room. So I have to ask you this: What prompted you to move to Washington? What, what was the? How did you make the decision? Oh gosh, that's been a long time ago. I'll have to think of. I'll have to try to remember. I mean, I always wanted to be involved in politics. I went to the LBJ School of Public Affairs. I was actually doing campaign work during the time that I was there. Actually, uh, my boss, who was the finance chairman of the campaign, had read an article in Life magazine on the plane, and it was a picture of Terry McAuliffe wrestling an alligator in the Miccosukee Indian Reservation to get a $5,000 contribution to, for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee. And he, as, he, as he used to do, he would send me a sheaf of papers with a note that said, Jim, see me about this. And so I went into him and I said, uh, Joe, Bill, what, what do you want to see me about this? What, do you, what, what is this about? And he said, oh, uh, I just thought that this reminded me of you. And when we get done with this campaign, I want you to go see that guy because I think he's going to hire you. And that's exactly what happened. That was fantastic. And you never had to wrestle an alligator. I never had to wrestle an alligator. But I did find somebody that I knew. I knew somebody who knew somebody who knew Terry McAuliffe. And I went in to see him, and he hired me. Well, that's fantastic. So you had worked on a gubernatorial campaign. Mark White, yep. From Texas, right? Congressional campaign? No, I, w I worked for, uh, for Lloyd Doggett when he ran uh, for United States Senate. Uh, against Phil Graham. And then, you, you, so you're, you're working for Terry McAuliffe, who, you know, one of the giants of political fundraising and, of course, goes on to be governor. Looking back at that length of career, what has been the most challenging thing you've ever done? Well, I think I really enjoyed being a chief of staff on the Hill. Um, it's really something different every day. It's like a little small business. You can sit down with your boss every Tuesday when he comes to Washington and, and say, okay, well, there are three things that are important to us this week. And then you go out and you spend the rest of the week trying to get those three things done, whether it's uh, flood insurance or Everglades restoration or, you know, whatever, whatever it is, or uh, sending out a mailer to 75,000 seniors talking about the, you know, whatever, new Medicare rates or something. In that experience, did you ever see an advocacy campaign coming to you that you recognized as of value and probably a great way to go about it, and then you applied that approach later? You know, it's such an interesting question. I think the, the sad fact is that I don't think that you recognize that until, in retrospect, you look back and you go, oh, I see how all those dots connected where I met that guy at his office and he told me about this problem and then I went to lunch with the guy from the association and he told me about this problem and then I came back and my boss said that he had run into somebody who wanted to talk to him about getting on a bill to solve this problem and finally 
all the dots connect and, and you know here we are trying to solve this problem. So it took me a little while to figure that out. I thought when I went to graduate school in public policy, I was like kind of in the center of the universe where all these big issues are being debated. And then when I got a job in Congress, I thought, well, this is certainly, this actually is the center of the universe where all these big issues are debated. And when I went downtown, I realized that actually that's probably part of the center of the universe too, where a lot of those advocacy campaigns are hatched and planned. And there's a lot of moving parts. It's really interesting to see that it all fit together. And I have to say, I probably didn't even recognize when I worked on the Hill, how all those advocacy components were coming together to influence what I was thinking and what I was doing. Well, I think you've touched on the entire theme of this podcast. <laughs> so I hope that somebody out there can take value in the lessons that you learned along the way, because I think I feel the exact same way. You're in the center of the storm, it feels like, because you're flooded with information. You're challenged by the clock almost every day to get something else done. And it's hard to step back from that and see the gears that are making it all happen. Absolutely. And, you know, I think... Uh, while we, we're creating advocacy campaigns, we're not really intending to be completely secretive about it, but at the same time, you know, we're delivering a message. We're not explaining, like, how we got from here to there. And I think a lot of times that type of synchronicity and confluence or just a random coincidence happens to members of Congress, and they think, Wow, it's a small world, but you know, there's a lot of other people who have spent a lot of time, energy, and money trying to put those thoughts together in that order in his head. Jim, in conclusion, what is a great piece of advice you could give someone new to Washington, maybe straight out of college or someone who's looking for a career shift, they want to get immersed into the D.C. ecosystem? Well, the uh, great political philosopher Mick Jagger said, you can't always get what you want, but if you try sometimes, you get what you need. And I've always believed that if you you give it everything you have, then you're probably going to end up doing okay. Fact is that we hired a lot of interns to print out the 150,000 pieces of mail that we sent out. And we loved having them. They loved doing it. And we made them successful. And they made themselves successful by their determination and their focus. Not many of them started out as the foreign policy LA, but you know all of them got their foot in the door and made it work, and then went where they wanted, where their career took them, or where they wanted to go. And you know a lot of those people are actually you know far more successful than I am. You know it's uh, interesting when I uh, run into them at a bar or see them on the street. Washington is a town that's built on relationships, so you never know uh, you know where you're going to meet somebody who could be of assistance to you. Jim, I think that's a, a great place to end this episode of 80 Proof Politics. I certainly want to thank you for joining us. And remember, no matter what you think about the state of politics in Washington these days, whether you think the glass is half full or half empty, there's plenty of room to fill your drink. Cheers. <laughs> thank you. Cheers. Did you know virtually all vessels traveling in the U.S. have to be American-built, owned, and crewed? That's thanks to the Jones Act, which is the bedrock of the American maritime industry. On the American Maritime Podcast, we cover the topics that matter most to the 650,000 men and women of American maritime, while also being accessible for the average listener to learn about this industry. Every episode features a new guest, including congressional leaders, senior military officials, leading policy analysts, and other experts. Come aboard and listen wherever you get your podcasts or watch on the American Maritime Partnership's YouTube channel.